Welcome to the forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Thank you and welcome so much for joining us. My name is Tina Martin. I am an anchor reporter and host for WGBH News in Boston. I'm also today's moderator. Our panelists, starting with my immediate right, are Wanda Barfield. She is Rear, Rear Admiral, U.S. Public Health Service and Director of the Division of Productive Health Services for the CDC. Anna Langer, who is a professor of the practice of public health and Director of Women in Health Initiatives at Harvard Chan School. Haywood Brown is the immediate past president of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Susan Mann, who's on the end there, is an obstetrician gynecologist affiliated with the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and a clinical assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And joining us remotely is Karen, is Karen Scott, a practicing OBGYN leading the hospital-based quality improvement initiative on birth equity for and with black mothers birthing people for the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative. So welcome to you, Karen. This event is being presented jointly by PRI's The World and WGBH and is part of the Dr. Lawrence H. and Robetta, Robetta Cohn Forum Series. And she is here, Roberta, excuse me. We are pleased to welcome the Cohn family and friends here today, so welcome to you. We are streaming live on websites for uh, the Forum and the World, so please join us there. We're also streaming live on Facebook and YouTube, and the program will include a brief Q&A, and we really want to be sure to get those in, those questions and answers. You can email those to us at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the Forum site right now. So let's start off by saying that millions of babies are safely delivered in the United States each year. Many women will experience safe and healthy pregnancies and deliveries and postpartum periods. However, we are seeing a startling trend in the United States at a time when m maternal mortality is dropping in many places in the world. Death-related pregnancy and childbirth in the United States have increased and the risk is triple or quadruple for black women in America. Today, we're going to look at what's driving that national trend as well as the racial gap, and then we'll talk about what we can actually do about it because it's very important to actually try to do something about it. To set the stage, let's take a look at a video from ProPublica, which published an amazing series with NPR about maternal mortality in the U.S., and it's called Lost Mothers. Let's take a look.
Wow. Um, that clip used statistics from 2016, and here we are in 2019. Those stats are still distressing, and that clip itself was disturbing. Uh, Wanda, give us an idea of the big picture. What's happening here? Well, thank you for your introduction, Tina, and thank you for your remarks about this important issue. As has been mentioned by Tina and also by the clip, that we see about 700 women dying each year in our country due to pregnancy or delivery complications. With better data and collection techniques, we're getting better and better in terms of identifying the causes of these deaths that are truly related to pregnancy as well as delivery. But while pregnancy-related mortality ratios have been relatively stable in the last few years, we know that overall pregnancy-related mortality has not decreased, and this really is a cause for concern. And another major cause for concern are these evident racial disparities that we're seeing. So for more than 30 years, we've seen a disproportionate burden of death among African-American women. Today, black women are almost four times as likely to die of a pregnancy-related complication compared to white women. And this is really an unconscionable issue. Importantly, emerging data from state-based maternal mortality review committees, and these are groups that come together to try to understand the causes of death, they're showing that 60 percent of maternal deaths may be preventable. And so we have no reason to believe that this preventability is that would vary by race. So we have a lot of room for opportunities for intervention in this area. Better data can also help us to better understand the gaps and the drivers of maternal deaths and think about ways that we can prevent them. So some of what we're seeing from these review committees are that there are underlying chronic conditions that are disparate, particularly for African American women. We're seeing that there are the effects of unconscious bias as well as structural racism that may be contributing to these deaths. And then the third issue is an issue of quality. We're seeing variation in hospital quality. So with a better data, we're going to get better understanding of what we need to do in terms of quality care initiatives that may have better impact. We can also think about standardized care that will allow women to get the right care at the right time and the right place. And high quality care is a really an important factor in trying to improve the care of women, not only in the hospital, but thinking about care into the year after delivery. So we have a real opportunity to really improve maternal health. At CDC, we're really trying to see how we can improve data across the country. And we have an opportunity now with the support <coughs> through Congress to um, look at maternal mortality review committees. And so states and jurisdictions will have an opportunity to improve um, their care for women. And um, at this point, I'd like to stop and I'll give a chance for Dr. Langer to to further to discussion. Yes, because you uh, study health trends around the world. Help us to put this uh, glo into global context, what's happening here in the United States. Sure, thank you so much for that question. <coughs> Those of us working on global maternal health always considered a maternal mortality and severe morbidity as a problem of low resource settings. 
Uh, in fact, after all, 99% uh, of maternal deaths happen in low and middle income countries. But that remaining 1% happens among vulnerable women uh, in developed countries. And in fact, uh, the US is the country where most of those deaths happen, and the country where probably the only one, the only developed country where the maternal mortality ratio is uh, going uh, up. Uh, overall, uh, if you list the countries uh, from the one with the lowest maternal mortality ratio, which is Finland, to the one with the highest, the U.S. occupies place number 46. Uh, in fact, it's interesting to see uh, that the U.S. is below uh, Qatar, Libya, and of course, uh, all Western European countries, but Qatar and Libya are countries with a much smaller economy and expenditures uh, in health. But as Wanda uh, correctly pointed out, these deaths don't happen randomly. So if you look uh, at maternal mortality among non-Hispanic black women and compare it with uh, what, what's happening in other countries, uh, you will see uh, that uh, maternal mortality among non-Hispanic black women here is higher than maternal mortality in Mexico. And it's the same one as in Malaysia, countries we wouldn't think are doing better uh, than uh, America. On the other hand, if you look at maternal mortality among non-Hispanic white women, you will see that uh, it, the ratio is above the national ratio in New Zealand and the UK, but very slightly <coughs> so, almost at the same uh, level. Uh, the first reports who draw our attention, our recent attention at, at least to this topic, came <coughs> mostly from human rights organizations. There was this <coughs> very important report from Amnesty International in 2011 uh, called, uh, um, uh, called Deadly Delivery, the Maternal Health Crisis in the U.S., and from journalists. And you showed that clip uh, from Nina Martin and NPR, ProPublica and NPR. Uh, but now more academics, uh, obviously professional associations, the CDC and so many others, are uh, doing more studies and publishing more papers, academic pap papers on this issue. Uh, trying to understand what's behind the numbers and trying to come up with solutions for uh, the crisis that uh, we are now uh, facing. Uh, so the drivers, uh, as uh, Wanda already pointed out, mm -hmm. uh, include lack of access, poor quality, <clears throat> and in fact, a basic societal undervaluing of women of color uh, that we are also trying to uh, understand better the reasons for and uh, well, everything that comes with it. So the U.S., I think, can learn from other countries. Uh, we've been quite successful <coughs> in making maternal mortality come down in many other places. So I look forward to maybe giving some examples later about that. Excellent. Um, Haywood, during your time as president of ACOG, mm -hmm. you advocated for public for policy change that can improve the state of maternity care in the United States. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that work. And, and listening to uh, you earlier, we talked about social determinants of health and, you know, um, hearing Anna saying, you know, undervaluing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, women of color or patients of color. So what's your, what is your perspective on that? Well, at ACOG, We've been focused on maternal mortality and near misses for many years, uh, recognizing the causes for maternal death, but also recognizing the risk factors for maternal morbidity and maternal death. And let me say from the outset, <coughs> for every maternal death, there are about 60 near misses. Mm. And those near misses include things like hemorrhage that didn't lead to death, heart failure didn't lead to death a blood clot that didn't lead to death, an infection that didn't lead to death. And so by understanding these type of things, it's been very, very helpful for us. 
and we've looked at this over the course of years. So one of the things that uh, I focused on over the past couple of years is to really push for maternal mortality reviews. And we spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. And as Dr. Barfield has indicated, we did get legislation passed this year uh, called the Preventing Maternal Death Act and Maternal Health Accountability Act that was signed into law. And the idea was that every state would have a maternal mortality review so we could better understand uh, the causes of pregnancy-related death. Um, there was going to be some financial support to, uh, for the infrastructure for states with, uh, who did not have a mater um, review program and also for those states who had one to try to strengthen those programs. Uh, the other things that we did were focus on levels of care, which Susan will talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, recognizing the fact that there are things that we could do, there were interventions that we should have. And I will talk a little bit about this later if I have time. <clears throat> but access to care is still a, a major issue uh, in the United States. You know, many of us live in rural communities, and we'll talk a little bit about the fact that uh, access is a, is, a, is a serious factor for women to have to travel uh, to distances and so forth. And the other factor, of course, is that fragmentation of care, where the provider and the delivery facility are very different. And so those also impact mm -hmm. issues. And with that, these are the type of things that we've talked about this year and we've emphasized. We've emphasized the challenges of access. We've emphasized the importance of doing the reviews. We've emphasized levels of care where a um, a uh, person would communicate from a rural community to a more tertiary care center certain types of patients who may be much more appropriate to be transferred. An example being a lady with uh, a placental abnormality where the placenta previa, which is at high risk for hemorrhage. And even though they may be able to do a cesarean at that facility, they may not have the blood to handle the volume of blood loss. And so those are the kind of challenges and things that we focus on to improve um, the quality of care and improving outcomes for all women. Um, Dr. Barfield also mentioned the fact that as we do reviews, <clears throat> we've clearly noticed this increasing trend over the last 20 years. Part of that has been due to better ascertainment, but part of it is also due to the fact that women are indeed uh, dying more often over the last 20 years, particularly women of color. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We will definitely dive more into that. Susan, mm -hmm. let's talk to you for a second. You're an OBGYN and you have delivered more than 4,000 babies, is that true? Probably five. But more than 5,000 <laughs> babies? Oh my goodness. All right, and counting, okay. Yeah. Uh, so you know firsthand what these mothers are going through and you recently published a, a study uh, co-authored by Haywood and others about how to make changes quickly in hospital settings to prevent maternal mortality. Talk about that. Sure, thank you very much and thank you for for inviting me. Um, I have been practicing very comfortably here at Beth Israel in Boston for the past 30 years. And um, I've had the honor of um, uh, seeing a lot of changes over time. And around the early 2000s, um, the Department of Defense came to Beth Israel and said, we want to work with you to start studying teamwork and communication among disciplines and see if we can uh, impart some of the knowledge we've gained from the military to medicine. And so that really became a strong interest of mine. And um, we started foundational work that really changed how people practice and communicate in hospitals across the United States and outside the United States. 
And when the increase in maternal mortality continued to go up during this period, I was a little bit baffled and obviously quite concerned. <clears throat> um, uh, I was asked by a hospital system in South Dakota that I was doing work for to come out and see if I could help them improve their communication with some of their rural hospitals and critical access hospitals. And as I mentioned, it's a real different world out in rural health uh, compared to what I'd been living in Boston. I joke that if I sneeze, there are about four people to hand me a Kleenex. <laughs> if you're in a rural hospital, you're waiting for the truck to come to deliver the Kleenex. So it's, a, it's quite a different experience. And so when I said, well, tell me about some of these hospitals, it was a system of 17 hospitals. Uh, they said, well, you know, some of them are really quite small. And I said, how small are they? And they said, well, some of them do 50 deliveries a year. And I said, wow, that's a delivery a week. How can you be good at doing a delivery a week? And um, I said, well, obviously you should close those hospitals. And they said, well, you know, Susan, we would. But then a woman might need to drive six hours to have a baby. I said, you need to leave those hospitals open. <laughs> and, and you need to make them better. And she said, that's why we called you. So being a good researcher, I called my friend Wanda. And I said, Wanda, where are people dying? Are they dying in these small rural hospitals? Are we able to get them to academic medical centers? This was, what, six, seven, eight years ago. And she said, you know, we just don't have great data. Mm -hmm. Because at that point in time, how we were collecting data, oftentimes would be a checkbox on a death certificate. Mm -hmm. We weren't always linking it to births. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it was really, um, and then the, the address also, you couldn't quite tell where they were dying. And she said, you know, actually, Susan, I really hate to tell you this, but I think quite a few occur outside of the hospital. And so you look at um, opioid abuse and domestic violence, suicide, and all those issues. And I said, wow, those are really big issues. I'm just a practicing obstetrician gynecologist. I don't know that I can tackle that. But I certainly can look into what is it that we do in our hospitals? How can we pre be better prepared? And how do we get all hospitals to do this? And so. Um, in our recent article that I wrote with Haywood and um, the current president, uh, Lisa Allier, and Kim McKay, who's my um, colleague out in South Dakota, we were really looking at how do you introduce these concepts to all hospitals. And what we wanted to focus on were the top three preventable causes of pregnancy-related deaths, and that includes severe hypertension and management even after they go home, um, postpartum hemorrhage, as we saw so many of those women in that clip died from, and then also preventing blood clots. Uh, I'm sure you heard about Serena Williams and, and the troubles that she had. So um, uh, we really wanted to focus on what can be done, how to improve teamwork and communication, and also um, these levels of care that Haywood was talking about. If you identify somebody that's had three C-sections and needs to have a fourth, should she really be done in a hospital that does one delivery a week? Mm -hmm. You know, she needs to be identified and risked out to a higher level of care. Uh, whether she'll go there is a different topic because women make their own choices in life. But it should be up to us to at least educate her and say, we have connections. We send our babies out when they're 28 weeks to these hospitals. We should have these kind of connections for our moms as well. We're going to get into all of that. I just want to make sure that we're uh, connecting with Karen. Dr. Scott, are you there? 
Yes, you can hi. hear Good us. Morning, Excellent. Good morning. Good morning. Panel. Good morning. In your role uh, at the California Birth Equity Collaborative and the California Maternity uh, Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, you've really uh, taken direct aim at disparities. Uh, some of the disparities that we've talked about. So tell us a little bit about your work. Yes, hi, thank you so much. So the California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, CMQCC, um, is a multi-stakeholder organization working closely with state and national partners to reduce preventable causes of maternal mortality, maternal morbidity, and racial disparities in California. CMQCC uses research, QI toolkits, statewide um, outreach collaboratives, and its innovative maternal data center to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants. Um, CMQCC was founded in 2006 at Stanford University School of Medicine, together with the state of California in response to rising maternal mortality and morbidity rates. Since CMQC's inception, California has seen um, a 55% decline in our maternal mortality between 2006 and 2013. Um, at this time, where the national maternal mortality rate continued to rise. Examples of our impact include prevention of 120,000 early births from 2009 to 2014, with an increase of 8% of births making it to full term, um, a reduction of maternal morbidity by about 21% between 2014 and 16. Among the 126 hospitals participating in our projects to reduce maternal hemorrhage and preeclampsia, yet there's more to our story. Since 1999, uh, the data reported around maternal mortality in California show a persistent three to four fold gap between black mothers and mothers from all other racial groups. Maternal mortality rates nearly doubled for all California um, racial and ethnic groups between, again, 1999 and 2006. In response, again, CMPCC was founded. Since 2010, I shared how we've declined, shown a decline in reduction of maternal mortality. But the expectation was that widespread adoption of clinical safety bundles would reduce this gap in the number of maternal deaths among black women. However, the difference in outcomes for black mothers compared with all other racial groups has persisted. Further analysis revealed that clinical safety bundles and social support interventions done in isolation without an integrated approach did not produce the desired outcomes. So CPCC, um, has now started an initiative with the California Birth Equity Collaborative. It really presents an opportunity to develop these QI uh, toolkits within a hospital setting to, again, to promptly evaluate and transform birth culture, care, experiences, and outcomes through the integration of clinical and sociocultural interventions and community hospital partnerships. So our data show that even in the absence of risk factors, such as age over 35 years, lack of health insurance, inadequate or no previous care, and less physical education, our US health system continues to not be able to protect our black mothers and birthing people from experiencing these higher numbers of deaths or life-threatening complications during pregnancy and childbirth. Again, increasing evidence is pointing to racism within and across multiple levels and not as a key cause of these birth disparities. Again, data also shows variations in the quality of care and outcomes between and within racial groups across hospitals in California, highlighting opportunities for advancing equity as well as anti-gender racism and quality improvement. So with our California Birth Equity Collaborative pilot, 
CNQCC aims to transform birth culture and care for, by, and with Black mothers and birthing people in partnership with Black women-led community-based organizations, with our participating hospitals, with local advisor groups being formed at each of the hospitals, as well as state and national Black women scholars serving as pilot mentors who represent various disciplines, specifically public health and social science. Thank you very much. Dr. Scott, I'm just going to throw it back to you. When you said uh, racism across all levels, how does that translate? How does that play out uh, for a mother who uh, has given birth or is giving birth and is, is looking for care? How does that play out? So what we are seeing is that what is it about the system, right? Really looking at systems accountability. What is it about the systems that allows variation in the responsiveness to a black mother who's reporting symptoms that are being dismissed, discounted, neglected, or there's a delay. And why are we seeing a variation in the response when we have science and technology that shows that we're able to prevent 60% of these causes? So we're wondering what is it about that response to the black mother, to black birth, to black working people is causing these variations within systems where black people are coming to the hospitals they are educated, they have health insurance in California. All of these factors that normally are shown to protect are not doing that. So how do we look at the ways in which interactions, communication, the counseling, and the decision-making is inclusive of black mothers and their birthing support systems and people in how healthcare is being delivered? And Susan, I hear you listening intently. What is your response to what Dr. Scott's saying? Sure. So, you know, there was um, about 2012, the um, National Partnership <laughs> for Maternal Safety and ACOG and 30 organizations came together to try and address this issue. And they have cranked out about 10 bundles of care, uh, recommendations for how do you treat hemorrhage, how do you treat postpartum uh, uh, hypertension. and um, about a year ago, or maybe this past summer, uh, there was an article in the USA Today that said hospitals know what to do, why aren't they doing it? Mm -hmm. And that really shook both Dr. Haywood uh, and I to the core. And we said, okay, we're putting out this material, we're educating people, what is the problem with basic culture change? And that is really something that I think needs to be looked at and all hospitals need to be held accountable for the following four things. And it needs to be from the C-suite all the way down to frontline caregivers. If the C-suite isn't providing training and support for the individuals at the bedside, this just isn't gonna happen. And the four things that we really looked at were um, the AIM bundles, making sure that you take what was put out there for maybe an academic medical center, but you're able to apply it to a smaller rural hospital. So if a patient begins to bleed, what are the medications that are available in a moment's notice? And not you need some pharmacist to release medication and they're not even in the hospital. How do you manage if there isn't a laboratory person to tell you what the blood count is? You need to quantify that blood loss. And, and we have tools to do it. It's just people need to be trained on this. 
Finally, a secondary is the team training um, and the communication. Um, the obstetricians, uh, nurse midwives, family medicine docs, whoever is the provider in the community providing care to these women need to come together with nursing and anesthesia in all hospitals to understand what are the demands on the resources for that day. And you can't go and start an elective C-section if somebody else is having a hemorrhage. The time of practicing in individual silos is really over, mm -hmm. and our care absolutely needs to be coordinated across the board. And then third, we need to take a page from the pilots. We need to simulate these emergencies. You never know where things are in your department till you need it, and sometimes, oh, we took that medicine out of the Pixis. What do you mean I can't get magnesium right at this moment? And it's going to be another 15 or 20 minutes. You only find out things like that if you try it and, and, and practice it. And people know what their roles are on the team when these emergencies arise. So um, we also recommend that people have briefings. We come together as a team before you start a C-section. So you understand what are the risks for that patient. And you give the patient a voice in the process as well to talk about what are her concerns. Mm -hmm. And maybe she shares with you, you know, my mother had a pulmonary embolus after she had my brother. I forgot to mention that to someone. Is that important? And you're like, mm, yes, that's actually quite important. Thank you. So making sure that the patient has a voice in this process is very important as well. And then, um, uh, finally, the, what we talked about, the levels of care and making sure the patients are, are at least offered to deliver at a site that makes the most sense <laughs> for them. Nobody wants to travel if they don't have to, but boy, every week I read about some hospital that's closing, and I know mm -hmm. Haywood's going to talk about these uh, health deserts, and it, it's just such a concern. And so talk about the health deserts. <laughs> thank you, Susan. Yes, thank you, Susan. She's, she should be paid extra to do my job. Yes. <laughs> We've already alluded to the fact that, uh, that maternity care is very fragmented in this country. Uh, you think about whether you're in a city like Boston, there are actually health deserts here for obstetric care, just like they are in rural North Carolina or rural Florida, where I'm from. You know, Susan alluded to the fact that um, 50% of all deliveries occur in hospitals with three, three or less deliveries a day. 50% mm -hmm. uh, of all counties in the United States do not have a practice in OBGYN or midwife. Mm -hmm. So when you think about that, you think about the whole access issue and availability issue. Uh, that's a real challenge. And so you have to make sure that you have ways of delivering the same quality uh, to individuals, whether they're in rural Montana a rural South Dakota as there are in urban Boston. And uh, those are really keys to this. And access to care and affordability of care, I'll talk a little bit about funding and, and support for you know, women and, and, and having those dollars available to go to the doctor. Many women who, you know, for instance, uh, are, don't have insurance may delay their prenatal care until they can get on Medicaid or until they find the insurance to do that. So the financial barriers are still there in a country as rich as ours. And so we really have to focus in on this every day, and I'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about that. But those are what we refer to as maternity deserts. Deserts by the aspect of where you live, uh, deserts by the aspect of not having providers, mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. And I want to just give an example of what Susan may be referring to. So imagine 
that you were a woman and you delivered and you had a near miss, you lost a lot of blood. Mm -hmm. uh, you lost so much blood that you are now weak and you go home with your baby and everything's. Imagine, though, living in an area where you really can't get back for your postpartum visit. Mm -hmm. Then imagine not having, uh, you know, a contraception available to you for pregnancy spacing. <laughs> and so you come into your next pregnancy, there you are with a blood count that's already half of what it should be. You already have another risk factor for having a hemorrhage because you've had a hemorrhage. And so when we talk about reviews, understanding the system issues where that woman could have actually had uh, an opportunity to build her blood count up or recognizing the fact that if she has another hemorrhage, she could lose all her blood volume and be at risk for mortality. So those are the type of things that Wanda will share with you that we learn from reviews. And that's really key to understanding what those risk factors might be uh, for that woman who is in a vulnerable situation. So Wanda, let's talk about that, this data collection. How important is it? So maternal mortality review committees are really our opportunity to truly understand what is going on around the circumstance of a woman's death. I sort of think of, you know, in infectious disease, we talk about how we're going to inf investigate sources of infection. But for maternal mortality, I think of it more like a, like a CSI. You know, there's a, there's a case that needs to be reviewed, and we really need to understand the underlying causes related to that death. And it requires a multidisciplinary team that's not just clinical, but also the issues related to social factors that are as well that are very important. Like, why wasn't a woman able to come back? There are social circumstances, whether it's issues of transportation or family circumstances that may not allow that. We need to better understand other factors such as mental health and how that might also contribute to a woman's death. So these review committees really have an opportunity to really not only <coughs> uncover those causes, these are things that we cannot get out of a death certificate. Yet there's also an opportunity for the review committees to then think about ways to prevent future deaths. And this is a really important aspect. And in combination with the recommendations that they can make to facilities, whether it's safety bundles or in larger areas like California, which has really led the way in terms of thinking about perinatal quality collaboratives. There are so many states now that are working together to try to think about these systematic issues and ways that they can improve health. So I think, you know, this is a really important issue. And back to what Karen was saying about some of the challenges with regard to disparities, I think we need to understand that there are systems in place or not in place that really affect the aspects of, of women's health. We know that there are facilities um, that African-American women may go to that have a lower quality of care systematically. And we really have an opportunity to try to think about how we can improve that access to care as well as the quality of care. And it's not just having those particular interventions, but what are those process measures that make mm -hmm. those interventions happen in a rapid manner and an appropriate manner every time. And Anna, you were saying something before we came in here about uh, from the from your global perspective, the experience of care. Yeah. Talk a little yeah. bit about that. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, in fact, uh, well, uh, you said something, or you asked the question about how racism racism plays out, and one of the ways I think it plays out is through <coughs> disrespectful and abusive treatment uh, during maybe pregnancy, but most importantly during childbirth. 
And this is an area that uh, we globally have been studying quite extensively. Uh, in fact, uh, we've documented that everywhere, but it mostly it could happen to any woman, but it mostly happens to women who are vulnerable because of race, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic status. Uh, women are very poorly treated. In fact, they are subjected to completely unacceptable mm -hmm. behaviors. Uh, sometimes they are slapped. Uh, they are spoken to in a very rude way. They are retained uh, in facilities, sometimes because they cannot pay. Uh, they, uh, well, obviously uh, their informed consent is not uh, asked for. So there are so many ways women are poorly treated. And that's the experience of care. So we've been talking mostly about clinical care, which is obviously essential. But it, the way women experience uh, their childbirth uh, is also critical. Mm -hmm. uh, if their symptoms are dismissed, as some of my colleagues here were saying, obviously there are immediate consequences. But even when that's not the situation, uh, when women are poorly treated, uh, they will mistrust the medical system, the health system, and they may not come back mm -hmm. when they have another pregnancy and when they have a complication. And probably they will spread the word in their communities that uh, that's a facility or a place where you are not treated as you deserve. Uh, so globally, we've uh, measured the prevalence of disrespect and abuse, and it's very common. We've also identified some of the reasons behind it, particularly among the health workforce. Uh, obviously, most people in the health workforce are well-intentioned, and they, uh, well, they studied and they practice uh, their careers because they want to help others. But sometimes they are disrespected themselves. They are treat, they are, they work in very poor conditions that don't allow them. Them, uh, to provide the, the care uh, women deserve. Of course, disrespect and abuse is unacceptable under any circumstance, but, but still. And we've also tested some interventions that uh, I think would be helpful here in the U.S. to address some of those issues. Like? Yeah, I mean, for instance, in ways to increase accountability. I mean, facilities need to uh, well, be prepared to answer uh, questions from their users about why some things are happening. Women need to be informed about what's going to happen when they go to the facility for delivery. Uh, very often women come from other places, never have been in that place, and they have no idea what's going to happen to them. And that's very, uh, very stressful. Uh, sometimes women with a lower level of education, maybe with some language barriers, will not understand what's going on in the labor room. So having someone with them, a companion, either a, a companion like a doula or maybe a relative, uh, will make the experience less stressful and will uh, provide a link between the woman and the healthcare providers. So all those interventions have been tested in terms of their effectiveness, their, their feasibility and acceptability. They will probably have to be adapted, those uh, that are new here. Uh, but I think they are all uh, good ideas that uh, already uh, that we already know work, at least to some extent. And Karen, I see you nodding your head um, when you were listening to what Anna was saying. Um, what do you think about the ideas that she just mentioned in terms of uh, care? So, so I agree. I think there's a lot that is happening in the international space around respectful and dignified care that our nation is struggling with that language, right? So in order to transform culture, it must happen with language. So how do we 
uh, acknowledge what nations around us are doing in the world around really holding to the fact that we're experiencing obstetric mistreatment or obstetric violence. And those are words that our systems are, I would say, are, are afraid to call out and to really speak very truthfully in a very transparent and meaningful way to our communities who are experiencing forms of structural violence, right, in the ways in which their bodies are handled, their words are, are valued, really coming, approaching black working people in a deficit model, right, in a mother blame or individual blame way. So how do we acknowledge and amplify a community-informed knowledge base of respectful and dignified care and how with that shared language and meaning then really allow, create the spaces for our black mothers and birthing people to help us define what a patient reported metric, right, of respect and dignity will look like in the hospital setting so that we could build trusted relationships, so that we could um, really have active and reflective and responsive listening so that we could also have really patient-centered interactions and counseling that's not just based on risk stratification. What if we were to do asset amplification, right? We continue to pathologize um, birth, and yet it can be difficult and dangerous, but that's the narrative that we're perpetuating. How can people feel dignified while giving birth? Um, and when birth can be a ritualistic or traditional rite of passage, passage for some of our communities. Um, and I think also by having what we're doing, as I'm speaking of, is having this reported, patient-reported experience, not outcome, but experience metric, it can allow us to build systems, um, accountability structures, or processes and mechanisms that really center Black women, Black working people, and again, how care can be delivered to them that honors them. Like, what would it look like if the outcome not just is decreasing death or um, complications, but what if the outcome is the experience? Um, and so we're able to really transform the culture within the hospital setting. Let's really think about the experience that someone is having that despite having a difficult birth or an unexpected outcome, but the experience of still being dignified, having some sense of autonomy in their birthing options that can really shift the ways in which um, people in our country experience birth, particularly margins, people sitting at the margins, um, like black mothers and black people and their support partners and families. Thank you very much. We're going to go to one more theme and then we're gonna take some questions because we have many people who have many questions. All right, this theme, managing the risks of chronic disease, including heart disease, pregnancy, uh, and the postpartum period. Uh, Susan, I'll shoot that out to you first. Sure. So uh, we talked a little bit about risk um, identification is very important. Uh, one of the other things that Haywood and I have uh, published on is the potential use of telehealth for patients that have some chronic diseases for diabetes um, so that these women don't have to travel hours to more academic medical centers. Can't that data be transmitted? Can't patients have face-to-face -face telehealth visits. So looking at what is it that we can do to identify these health um, risks and then to make it more patient-friendly and user-friendly in, in this difficult time. Haywood. Yeah, I think we also have to remind ourselves that about 60% uh, of all maternal deaths occur postpartum. Mm -hmm. And about a decade ago, I really changed the whole structure of postpartum follow-up, and it was my theme during my presidency where we actually started seeing women a lot earlier in that postpartum uh, care. 
uh, for instance, patients being who really had major complications being seen in two weeks. I mean, the idea is to screen them for postpartum depression. If the patient has had a major complications, uh, really counseling them again about recurrence risks and things like that. But we also know that by doing earlier postpartum visits, you decrease the rate of readmissions and death, particularly from things like blood clots, which are more likely to occur in the postpartum period, heart failure, which is most likely to present. And keep in mind that now cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes for maternal mortality. And many of these women will present late in the pregnancy or early postpartum. And so changing those paradigms and getting people to think about that has been extremely, extremely important. We know if you deliver from a, a rural community, your chance of readmission or complications and mortality are a lot higher than if you delivered in an early, uh, urban community. So those are the type of things. And we're focusing on uh, policies that would actually cover uh, the 12 weeks, at least 12 weeks postpartum. And that's the work that we're doing with Medicaid right now to focus in on that. But earlier follow-up, following guidelines, for particularly for hypertension, looking for heart failure, and all those type of things are very, very important. And Anna, before we get to questions, community partnerships, did you want to talk about that a little bit? Yes, I would love to. Uh, in fact, in public health and in medicine too, uh, we work too much in silos. And we need to break those artificial silos because, uh, and in the case of women's health, we need to take a life course approach. In fact, what happens to a woman during pregnancy delivery and the six weeks postpartum or even 12 weeks postpartum uh, is a result of what has, has happened to those women earlier, mm -hmm. maybe starting in adolescence or maybe even when they were children. Mm -hmm. And the, cons the consequences of what happens during the maternal health period uh, will uh, happen or will uh, be uh, evident and visible later in life as well. We know how much the risk of type 2 diabetes increases among women who had gestational diabetes sure. or uh, hypertension among women who had preeclampsia. Uh, so uh, we need to take uh, that uh, approach. And in fact, uh, I wanted to quickly mention uh, that uh, we are now starting a project uh, here in our own backyard in Boston in collaboration with Ariadne Labs uh, and with the general support of the Boston Foundation to look at uh, racial and ethnic disparities, uh, but also immigration status disparities among women during maternal health care and one year later, because we want to look at those in, at that interface between what happens during the traditional maternal health period and uh, what happens uh, after uh, women have uh, delivered. Excellent. All right. Rafael Baez has a question. You know what, I'm going to allow anyone, including you, Karen, to answer these questions <laughs> if you feel so inclined. All right, uh, Rafael has a two-part question. The first part is, how can local government and state government help reduce maternal mortality? So I, I think one major step is through maternal mortality review Absolutely. committees. And I think that the time is now in terms of that opportunity. So. Um, working with both, you know, clinical care and public health, state health officials, um, leaders of schools of public health, leaders in uh, state-based ACOG, we have a real opportunity to really work together in terms of trying to reduce the risk of maternal death. Excellent. I could add to that by saying that the whole state, every state almost has a perinatal collaborative that they're working with or a state department of health. And one of the ways that you 
get reviews going is through your legislature and to your Department of Health, and it really is a partnership. Uh, getting that partnership going, you really want uh, not government interference, but government help in order to make sure that they uh, support these initiatives that you're doing, and I think that's the key. Excellent. All right, Curtis Older. Oh, I'm sorry, Karen, did you want to say something? I You're do, I do. I want to add to that because I, you know, in thinking about local and state government, I would say um, infrastructure, like funding the unsung heroes, the unusual suspects in black maternal health equity, which are lactation consultants and our doulas. And so they are cultural brokers between hospitals and communities that usually are go um, unnoticed and not valued. And so that is what we are doing is really strengthening those cultural brokers of bridges who already have the trust um, and the respect of our communities, but they also sit in those spaces within the hospital navigating these power, um, hierarchical power, power differentials and doing that as an advocate on behalf of our communities. So I really think we need to reinvest in lactation consultants and doulas who are really sitting in those spaces that can bridge hospitals and communities to move towards black maternal health equity. Excellent, thank you. Okay, Curtis Older, I'm trying to get as many questions as I can in here. Has anyone done a study on the death rate for pregnancy and childbirth for married women versus unmarried women? And if so, what do those stats indicate? I think those are the things we, uh, we find in reviews. And uh, it's no question that unmarried women, uh, unplanned pregnancies, uh, have higher risk for not only morbidity but potentially mortality. And I think those are the things that we've learned. The other thing that we have appreciated now is that, uh, you know, we have pregnancies in women who are older. We, and we recognize just from the data that pregnancies in women who are in their late 40s have a higher risk for morbidity and mortality, uh, even though the woman may appear to be quite healthy. And one study was shown that maybe as many as 20% of women who have pregnancies over age 45, particularly if they have twins, have a cardiovascular event. Mm. And so when we think about the rise in cardiovascular disease as a cause of maternal death, I mean, it really has to, plays into the role of how important preconception counseling is if you have an underlying condition or if you have certain types of things. So yes, that data is there. Excellent, anybody else wanna? Well, marital status and education, you know, may be a proxy for, you know, wealth and income. And we know still that African-American women who are well-educated still have a higher risk of death than mm -hmm. low-educated white women. And the thing that, uh, that Wanda's saying, I mentioned the whole story of anemia. Women of, uh, poor women and women of color are more likely to be anemic. And so anemia is a risk factor for postpartum hemorrhage, but also if you lose blood, you're more likely a risk factor for higher morbidity and mortality. So irrespective of socioeconomic sometimes, anemia can be a factor that, that's easily corrected with just some iron pills. Thank you. Karen, I hear your microphone on. Yes, I just, I just want to continue to add because I always want to critically challenge right these, these uh, tropes or narratives around the contributors or drivers of severe maternal morbidity because even with the data that we found that even after controlling for age, 
um, BMI or obesity, as well as comorbidities, those are not the largest contributors to severe maternal morbidity. So again, it's pointing back to not the individual or that body, the black body, but what is happening when that black body shows up within the hospital setting that's impacting the responsiveness, right? We have these tools, we have these policies, we have these protocols, but why are we not responding to a particular group in an effective, appropriate, timely manner as we do with other populations? Thank you, and time is uh, leaving us here. Um, we're done at one o'clock. I just want to give each of the speakers uh, an opportunity to give us maybe one or two takeaways from this. Wanda, we'll start with you. So uh, I think that there's a lot that we can do, but one area that's really critical for states is to think about ensuring risk-appropriate care. Um, we need to standardize and approve care to ensure that all women are delivering at the right place and the right time and the, the right hospital. Anna. Uh, yes, I would like to emphasize that the U.S. is part of the globe <laughs> and that <laughs> it, we should break that silo too and think about maternal health for all women everywhere or women's health if we want to uh, be more inclusive. Uh, so that's one, uh, one key message that I would like to, uh, to share with you. And another one uh, that comes from uh, low and middle income countries is that many of those countries have made maternal health care free and available for all women. And those countries are much poorer than the U.S. So I think it's quite appalling to think that so many women still face financial barriers to have access to quality care in a timely fashion. So what can I say? I would encourage us all to push uh, so all women in the U.S. have free access to maternal health care. Thank you. Hey, what? We have to re-educate on the importance of the postpartum visit mm -hmm. and postpartum follow-up and early postpartum follow-up for all women irrespective of where they live. We know that women uh, who are poor are less likely to show up for that postpartum visit, mainly because of barriers. Mm -hmm. And we need to make sure that that's emphasized at the time of discharge from the hospital, that the patient understands the importance of us, providers understand the importance of it, and systems uh, understand the importance of that visit. And we need to be able to have coverage for women for an extended postpartum period. It's not a one episode visit. It really is seeing the patient when she needs to be seen. Susan? It's always hard to go last. Everyone's made some fabulous points. <laughs> no, you're points. not last. <laughs> Karen's last. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, I forgot about you, Karen. I apologize. You'll have a hard time, I promise. Uh, however, I think really it's, um, um, this maternal mortality thing is so multifactorial. Mm. And hospitals really need to be held accountable for their state of preparedness mm -hmm. and their ability to respond to emergencies as they arise, uh, regardless of, of who the patient is, what color she is, what, what, uh, where she gives birth. It, it needs to be across the board a level of accountability, like I said, from the C-suite all the way down to the frontline caregivers. Karen, final thoughts? Mm -hmm. Two, so I really want to advocate and, and hold, again, as we're saying, systems accountable for, I'm going to say, the cultural rigor and humility and responsiveness and the scientific um, integrity and validity of our work, and also to um, dismantle the silos, to invest 
and public health and social sciences as transdisciplinary approaches that really center and uplift the voices and knowledge and expertise of our black mothers and birthing people. Excellent, thank you very much. That was, that was easy to, <laughs> to close out. All right, I'm Tina Martin. I would encourage you to join us for the next forum, Feeding 10 Billion by 2050, Creating Sustainable and Healthy Food Culture. That is March 22nd, 2019, noon to one. Thank you so much, everyone in our audience and everyone at home for joining us. We appreciate it. Take care. This has been a production of the forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.